Welcome back, everyone, to the Risk Intel Podcast, powered by SRA Watchtower, where we share risk intelligence with experts from across the banking industry. I'm your host, Ed Vincent, CEO at SRA Watchtower. Welcome to the Risk Intel Podcast. Please join me in welcoming Joe Barry to today's session. Joe is co-head of investment banking, as well as co-head of fintech investment banking and head of depositories investment banking for Keith Brienton Woods, who are a Stiefel company, the leading expert on financial services. Joe brings more than 25 years of strategic advisory experience, and I'm excited for Joe to share his perspectives on the markets, the regulatory environment, and the risk space today. Joe, thanks for being here. Uh, thank you for having me. Pleasure to be here. Joe, let's let's look backwards for a second before we jump into into twenty twenty four and 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 what the environment looks like ahead of us. Um, quite a quite a bit happened in twenty twenty three, and uh, and we're still kind of digging out from the hangover of that. So perhaps you could give us a little bit of historical context and characterize a look back at twenty twenty three and and what are the implications of that as we start looking forward. Uh, yeah, and and great great topic to start with. Um, so 2023 was, was unique. Um, look, cycles happen. Um, and whenever you have an interest rate cycle, um, we have a, a credit cycle that then you know follows. What was interesting is that we kind of thought this cycle was different uh, because we didn't have any uh, credit problems in 2023. Um, part of that was because of all the liquidity markets um, from you know, post-COVID. But um, we, we had essentially a crisis in confidence in deposit safety. And um, when interest rates went up as fast as they did, 525 basis points in a year, and you had, you know, essentially 10 years of zero interest rates where you had liquidity flooding into banks and they just put it into fixed rate securities, which they thought were safe. And then the Fed turned around and raised, you know, in one year, unlike it had done before. Now, those assets are money good. They just have interest rate marks against them. And when the market and actually the customers and deposit customers of certain high-flying banks like Silicon Valley realized that there was a massive unrealized loss in the balance sheet, um, you know, they started to get scared. And so Silicon Valley, you know, banked technology and um, used technology, but they just weren't as enthusiastic about asset liability management, right? And so in two days with that technology, $142 billion left the bank. And that contagion didn't stick with Silicon Valley. It, it spread. It went over to First Republic. It went over to Signature. And essentially, three of the highest value banks in the country went, went down. Right? They failed. And the market didn't understand how to box that risk. Um, we know how to box credit risk. We've seen credit cycles before. But what do you do when you have a $150 billion bank that loses right. 60% of its deposits in, a, in two days. Like it's never happened before. Um, and we never saw deposit runs like that since the Great Depression. And that hangover lasted all the way through 2023. Everything essentially stopped. Banks stopped lending. No, no deals happened. Regulators overreacted, right? And clamped down. And we came into 2024 sort of stuck. And um, there was some optimism going, you know, into the first quarter that maybe um, with with deposit stability, we'd have some normalization in financial markets. Um, but what's really happened is we, we are into what the normal cycle is, which is rates go up, 
credit cycle happens, right? So credit costs are going up. So, so essentially, we're in a good old fashioned credit cycle, and it's going right. to be led by commercial real estate. And at some point towards the end of this year or the beginning of next, we're going to have um, a peak in charge offs, um, mostly in certain asset classes around commercial real estate in certain markets, Sunbelt, uh, Northeast urban markets, office, some multifamily. And when the market believes that it's peaked, then I think we'll see a real lift in financial services valuations and we'll start seeing deals happen again. That, that's if the regulators don't um, put a quash to that, which they. Well, so let's let's touch on that that last bit there. Right. Because right there have been oh. some deals where regulators have not necessarily been the most cooperative <laughs> um, over the last year or so. Right, pushing 400 days of waiting for a deal to close. So maybe a little bit about on that regulatory landscape and what what should what should or could the regulators do or not do to to not cause this same pain to just continue. Yeah, look, the Biden administration made it clear that they don't really like mergers and acquisitions, right? And so the regulators are sort of perpetuating that view. Um, if you go back, we did a study looking at. The, the duration of regulatory review before closing for bank mergers since 2002. And if you go back, the average closing period was like 130 days uh, for meaningful transactions, kind of over 250 in deal value. Um, today, if you do a meaningful transaction, let's say over a billion in deal value, the average closing period is over 380 days and growing. And um, there is a meaningful difference from whether, and this is the past because now we're being told that, that you can't have delegated authority anymore, but uh, on certain transactions, um, the, the primary regulator would delegate the authority to the region. And in those cases, uh, deals were closing in about six months, up from like three months. 80% um, of the transactions that we worked on over a billion didn't get delegated authority. They, they went to DC and they're subject to over a year in, in closing. And what happens across that year is that the, the parties lose customers. On average, they're losing seven to eight percent of their customers waiting for deals to close. And so you have to, you know, you have to factor that in when you're thinking about doing something strategic if you run a bank or a regulated entity. And we 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 saw the lowest level of bank MA in 2023 um, in the last 25 years. And it's tied to that, that and the instability uh, from last March when you had the crisis and confidence around deposit safety. So with the the delegated authority concept, um, can that come back? Is that, I mean, is that is that cyclical? Is that just tied to the political environment? It is, it is. It's wholly driven by the people that lead the regulatory agencies. And right now, um, whether it be the FDIC, the Fed, the OCC, you know, they all are pushing back on on consolidation. What's interesting is that they're they're not seeing the forest through the trees, though, because what's happened as they've restricted banks from getting scale uh, and profitability and the ability to invest in technology is the non-bank banks, the Apollos, the KKRs, the credit funds, those top 10 are bigger than the banking industry today. And they're unregulated with a higher cost of capital, right? So it costs more to finance the growth of the U.S. economy because of what the regulators are doing to the banks. That sounds like something that needs to course correct. It's a question of when. Yeah. Um, 
unfortunately, my, my experience over the last 28 years is um, we regulate through crisis and something bad is going to have to happen to those, those big entities that now are yeah. bigger than the banking industry to cause uh, a regulatory response and oversight. Um, and I don't know what that will be, but I, I do know that there are many asset classes that banks used to be in that they were regulated out of that now sit in those funds. And um, those funds might be better at managing risk, but they're not perfect. And so at some point we're gonna see uh, a credit burp that is not pleasant for the US economy. Right. Don't know well, look, we we had, right, we had an experience there in the, in the first quarter of this year with New York Community Bank, right, where you had a situation where when you talk about controls and risk management um, that, right, was already regulated, but obviously had gone through some significant change over the last year. Um, and the you know, the risks and the controls in that environment, you know, really were not in place. Yeah. Um, so we had our um, mid and large cap financials conference last week in, in Florida. I uh, had 150 banks there. New York community actually uh, showed up. Uh, Sandra Danella, who is the executive chairman now uh, in running the bank. Uh, came, uh, which I thought was great because you had to put this one head on. And essentially, he kind of owned it and said, we didn't have the, the risk controls that we needed for the size we were. Um, and we messed up and we're going to fix it. And that there's a lot of low-hanging fruit that they can um, attack from a cost structure, from an asset side of the balance sheet to restructure it. And he's committed to, you know, fixing the boat. Um, and I, I think that there was a lot of uncertainty on the state of that bank going into that conference and people came out with, you know, they're not happy with what happened, but uh, th they view it as being an idiosyncratic risk um, because of its concentration in commercial real estate uh, in New York city and multifamily in New York city. I think that's a mistake because I do think that we are heading towards a broader commercial real estate correction and it's not just New York. It's going to be, you know, in other places where you've had a lot of uh, overbuilding um, and, you know, projects that were financed in 2021 and 2022 that, you know, in today's interest rate environment don't work. And, um, you know, we have our analyst, Jade Romani, you know, he, he estimates that you, know, you could have mid single digit loss rates to high single digit loss rates in some, some of the more risky commercial real estate asset classes. Now, I don't think that's going to be you know, um, cataclysmic for the banking industry. It's not, it's not existential risk, but it, it is a big uh, hit to earnings. Our analysts th uh, believe that every basis point of provision added to deal with that uh, credit risk is 1% uh, less earnings growth for the industry, right? And so historically, banks have um, provisioned between 40 and 60 basis points a year for charge-offs. And they were provisioning less than 20. So just getting back to a normalized provision level means that we're going to have almost, well, there won't be any earnings growth. It's going to be negative, right? Yeah. yeah. So, and that's, but that's a good old-fashioned credit cycle. We, we've dealt with these before. They're not fun to go through, but the market understands them and they understand that they understand the box that risk. And that's why I think 2024 is very different from 2023 which was a whole new kind of uh, risk that we just didn't understand how to, how to deal with. Um, because of that, it's a much longer cycle, 
but yeah, at least now we know where we're going. And uh, you know, bank valuations and earnings will, will will be hurt by it in the near term, but we'll come out of it. And when when we do come out of it, we do see historically that the bank stocks rip, and you see a lot of consolidate you know, consolidation happening. Is there anything in terms of um, deal size or types of deals that you think you know get through at a time at a time like this? Do small well, deals get through? Small, yeah, small deals are not, or maybe in, or maybe massive deals like Capital One Discover. I, you know, <laughs> opposite ends of the spectrum, right? Well, uh, I'm, I'm going to plug our, our our fintech conference. Richard Fairbanks is going to be there and talking about the deal. Um, it was great to see that. Um, it's a huge transaction. Uh, it moves the needle from a market share perspective for Capital One uh, in a huge way. And if that gets approved, it's great. Um, history would say that those types of transactions have a long road to get approved. Yeah. Um, and, and your point about size does matter. But what I have found that um, it is the complexity of a deal, the size of a deal, and whether or not a transaction, regardless of size, has a, a dispute by a community group um, is a, a major factor in, in what creates duration on your closing period. But in general, smaller deals do get through. Um, we just saw Old National be able to close its transaction with Capstar, which was a you know sub $4 billion bank in, in, in Nashville. And I think it was like three months, which is great to see. Yeah. I also think that there's a number of category four banks, right? So the, the regular uh, put the banks in categories. Category threes are your are your SIFIs, your systemically important financial institutions who are subject to a much greater level uh, of uh, regulatory oversight. And our view is that banks that are 170 to 200 essentially are going to be regulated as if they are um, SIFIs. Yeah. So category fours that are being regulated as category threes. And my view is that if the if the category four bank is committed to the regime already of, of putting up the expense they need to, to to be a category three, I think they'll be allowed to do an acquisition to get some assets to offset some of that cost and get and go from you know 180 to 230, 240, um, because they have the risk controls in place and they're and they're already being regulated. I also think that bigger bigger companies can do bolt-ons like Old National and Capstar. We we see those two paths sort of being open. The question is the the mergers of equals that we saw in 2021, and we had I think we had 70% market share of these transactions where you take two $30 billion companies or two $50 billion companies and put them together to create yeah. real, real regional um, powerhouses. I don't know when those come back because the regulators are just not are not playing ball. Um, we have, we have a client in New Jersey called Provident, and that deal has been outstanding for almost 400 days. It's Provident Lakeland. It's you know two 20 billion dollar companies coming together. Um, you know, one of the things that we do notice is that if you have a lot of overlap, um, where you're going to have branch closures, those things, uh, those deals uh, have a history of taking a long time to get approved. Yeah. Um, so, you yeah. also mentioned you. You also mentioned you've met, we've talked about it in the past that that you know every 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 day, every week, every month that a deal is not being approved. There 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 is a there's a cost uh, in terms of maintaining customers and how long do they stick around for? And so if you look at one of these deals, um, and and you and you're losing you're losing customers while you're waiting, it doesn't make you think about doing the deal itself in the first place. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like it's it's a regulatory game of red light, green light, and while the light is red, um, you lose customers, um, both from just normal attrition, but also people steal you know, other competitors stealing them. We looked yeah. at the 10K filings for New York community when it was had the Flagstar transaction uh, outstanding with over 400 days uh, and uh, M&T's acquisition of uh, People's uh, Heritage, uh, People's Financial in, in uh, Connecticut. And we they, they in the 10Ks, they tell you the size of their customer bases. And we saw that they had, you know, seven to eight percent attrition in, in their customer base over that period. And so what's clear is the regulators don't care about what happens to your business in the independency period that they they're just going to do their thing and so yeah. from a strategic standpoint a board and management team has to assess that um do you want to even take that risk um in an environment like this and, and overwhelmingly we did they didn't in 2023 now we know uh from talking to the ceos in the industry that they all see the need for scale the need to get larger to invest in technology to be able to compete with the largest banks in the country um, and let's be real, the, the, the four largest banks in the country, Bank of America, JP Morgan, Wells Fargo, Citibank, they haven't done a deal in decades, and they are significantly larger than they were in 2008, right? right. So, all this, this, this regulatory pushback on mergers isn't stopping the biggest banks from getting bigger. Oh, yeah. And, and then the FDIC awarded First Republic to JP Morgan. Like, how, how does that happen? And right. happens, it's because they have so much capital. And it's such a huge balance sheet that the hundred billion dollar of fixed rate mortgages that any other buyer of that of that FDIC transaction would have had to put up capital to, to, to do, they didn't. And so they benefit from from their too big to fail and, and scale. And they they took what was, I think, the best kind of high net worth private bank in the country. And they got it for free, essentially. So, right. Right. Like PNC or US Bank Corp could have taken that deal and significantly enhanced their franchises and become better competitors to the Wells Fargo's and the B of A's and JP Morgan. But instead, it went there. So yeah. something, something is fundamentally wrong with that. I mean, I mean, the regulators say they're trying to stop this too big to fail, and yet they award that to JP Morgan. There, there's, there's a, there's a, and it sounds like, right. So they're, right. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so that's an interesting message. Uh, and certainly, it makes it hard if you are that mid-sized bank to say, how do I get a seat at the table in, in one of those situations? Yeah. Like Provident Lakeland is a great, great example. You got two $20 billion companies coming together to be a, a, a good regional banking company to compete in that market where JP Morgan and Bank of America are huge, the, the New York Metro market. And they are, you know, waiting for over a year to close. And there's nothing as, as far as we can see that is wrong with that deal to, to, to stop it. Now we're not, we're not. I'm not in the boardroom. I can't. I can't tell you. You know, with perfect clarity. But it seems that that that's a pretty easy transaction to approve, and it's just sitting outstanding. Yeah, yeah. Certainly makes you think if uh, before before you pull the trigger on one of those situations. Yeah. Um, look, uh, let me bring this back to the to the, the the theme you talked about 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 risk and risk management there and and, and risk committees and um, you know you talked about this concept of of CEOs see the need for scale. Uh, and I think that, right, we have a lot of you know, folks that watch our podcast that are in, in this risk space. Um, is there anything that those risk departments can do to help help the CEOs as, as they consider the, these M&A situations? Right. How could you know, what, what do you shine a light on? What do you need to disclose? What what, what do management teams need to hear? Well, well, certainly, um, if you are going to jump 
from one category to another, right? Uh, you need to know that pro forma, you've got the risk infrastructure to uh, adequately monitor what you have on your balance sheet and what ex ex existential external risks are there and be able to show that to the regulars. Um, yeah. and, and you can see where that investment needs to be made, right? Our, our research department put out a, a piece called Shoots and Ladders. And, you know, the game we used to play as kids. Yeah. see that as banks grow from 10 billion to 20 to 40 to 60, their ROE goes up as they, as they benefit from scale. And then at 80, it plummets. And it plummets because the investment needed to cross 100, where you become a category four bank. And then it starts to go up again until you get to like 200. And then it comes down <laughs> because you have to invest to be a category three bank. Right. And so when you're doing acquisitions, the risk committees, your board ha has to understand that you have invested appropriately to manage the size that you're going to be. And not just in your own minds, in the eyes of the regulators as well. And it's really important to assess that. Right. And 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 clearly those regulators are they're holding the keys right now. So if they if there's any angst whatsoever. Well, the, the regulators always held the keys. Uh, uh, an old time banker once told me, you know, he he his family on the bank, he goes, My family thinks they own the bank. <laughs> we don't own the bank, the regulators own the bank. Um, and that's always been the case. It's just, you know, uh, it's it's the creep over time. Um, and I, I believe that the industry is is one that is easy to pick on because everyone has a bank in their in their town. So they know what it is. Yeah. If you go to, you know, Joe, Joe, Mr. Joe Voter and say that, that that Apollo or that KKR, they're really bad. They're like, well, who's that? Right. Who's that? Right. But big time banks like JP Morgan or Bank of America, you, you could you could. It's very easy politics to to say that those are the bad guys, um, yeah. and it's there. The, I find that um, politicians will and regulators will say, "Oh, we we really want to support the community banks," and yet they're not allowing you know the things that need to happen that make them viable, um, and and that needs to change, right? Um, we need to allow these banks to get to scale so they've got money to invest in the technologies and the risk controls to be able to deliver. Um, the the services and products that consumers and businesses require. And my view is that this industry has been the lifeblood of the U.S. economy. Um, the innovation of the banking industry over time has allowed us to um, have a lower cost of capital than than other countries, and like Western Europe, for example. And it's because of the diversity of our banking system. Um, th there's options. Um, you go to France, there's like there, there isn't. Like you go to Spain, there yep. isn't. There's 20 banks. And yep. when I started in the business, there were 12,500. And now there's less than 5,000, but there's still a lot. Um, and those 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 hometown banks need to get uh, to a better level of profitability so they can invest and compete with uh, the ubiquitous banks in, in the country. And, 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 and it's clear that to be able to do that, you got to have risk controls and understand what your risks are. Great thoughts, uh, Joe. A lot to digest there, uh, and and I think that that you've you you hit on a number of different themes about how do we get through a crisis? Do you regulate through it, or do you do you let the markets play uh, play a role? Uh, those unregulated entities and their higher cost of capital and what the impact is that on the the economy, uh, the broader 
commercial real estate correction that uh, yeah. that that we see a little ways off, but is going to clearly play a role in this. And then this concept of, of of scale and how that has to play a huge role in in these in these banks banks being able to be successful and be able to be able to compete. Yeah, um, let, let me close with this, Ed, because because I I don't want to sound doom and gloom. Um, the one thing I can tell you is that this industry and the regulators do get it right in the end. Uh, and we've yeah. gone through, uh, you know, in the last 40 years, major changes from uh, the deregulation of deposits to interstate banking, to the dot-com crisis, to the great financial recession, now this technological revolution. And every time we, we hit these bumps, but then we, we pull it together. And, and I believe we will. It's just taken. It's taken a little longer than than usual, but we'll get there. I, I, it's it's an innovative industry. It is absolutely. It's a it's a required industry for the, for the country, and yeah. uh, I think we'll, we'll we'll get it right. Eventually, I appreciate uh, you ending with some words of of optimism there, Joe, and yeah. uh, and and we will uh, we will uh, look forward to to getting it right and uh, and and seeing right seeing seeing a successful outcome. Thank you for the time. Thank you for sharing such great data, statistics along the way. Good luck with the, the upcoming conference. And for anyone interested in, in connecting with KBW and, and talking about, about one of their conferences, right? You guys run events on, a, on an ongoing basis. I'm sure your relationship managers would be happy to take a call from any of our, any of our viewers. Certainly would. Look forward to seeing you next week. Thanks, guys. Thanks, Jeff. Take care. Yeah. For more information on SRA, please visit srarisk.com. Watch or listen to our weekly Risk Intel podcast series or follow us on LinkedIn to learn more.